Hey friends, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors of Restore Temecula, and I want to welcome you from wherever you're tuning in. Uh, today we're going to continue our series, our Advent series, by taking a look at one of the most important moments in the history of the church. I'm really excited to uh, kind of dive into God's word with you. Before I do, I'm going to go ahead and pray. So would you join me from wherever you're welcome, wherever you're tuning in from, and pray with me. Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. Your word always has something to say to us that's fresh and impactful. And I ask that you, by your spirit, would really apply the, the truth of this scripture to our hearts. Would you help us to see how good the gospel is, how it's really good news, and how it changes the way we view ourselves, the way we view each other, how we view you, God, and it brings joy and freedom. And I pray that that would be the end result of this message, would be joy and freedom for all those who listen, starting with me. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and start with a story. I'm going to share a story with you. It's a story from uh, the from the 20th century. So this is at, from England in the 1930s. Uh, as you may know, England is a monarchy. They have a king and a queen, or sometimes either or. And uh, back in 1931, King Edward VIII, met a woman whose name is Wallace Simpson. And this was before he was a king. This is when he was the Prince of Wales. And she actually was married. And they actually developed a romantic relationship while she was still married. It was made people in the royal family and the British government pretty uneasy. And in 1936, Wallace Simpson divorced her husband and Edward became the king. So when he expressed a desire to marry Simpson, a crisis actually erupted. Edward was the head of the Church of England, and the Archbishop of Canterbury wouldn't allow him to marry a twice-divorced American woman, and the British government rejected a plan where Edward VIII would remain king, and then Simpson would take on a lesser role, a lesser title than queen, and their future kids would not be heirs to the throne. So the Prime Minister at the time, Stanley Baldwin, he visited the king on November 16th and told him the public would never accept their union. And Baldwin urged the people's opinions to be considered. And this is what the king said. He said, I am going to marry Mrs. Simpson and I am prepared to go, according to the Times of London. On December 10th, Baldwin entered British Parliament with a document in his hand, one of these crazy moments in history. He handed it to the speaker. This is a message from His Majesty the King, signed by His Majesty's own hand, the Prime Minister announced to the House. The following was read aloud, reports say, with uncharacteristic traces of emotion. And it said this, After long and anxious consideration, I have determined to renounce the throne to which I succeed on the death of my father. And I am communicating this, my final and irrevocable decision. I will not enter into my private feelings, but I would beg that it should be remembered that the burden which constantly rests upon the shoulders of a sovereign is so heavy that it can only be borne in circumstances different from those in which I found myself. This was received in silence. King Edward's, King Edward VIII's last act in his 326 day reign was signing his own abdication. He was stripped of his royal highness status. He was demoted to the Duke of Windsor. Edward and Simpson moved to France. For all intents and purposes, they were exiled. 
And it was said over the course of time that they were offered jobs in the private sector, but he couldn't take them because making money in commerce and industry was a conflict of interest to his family, the monarchy. So they stayed in France. And to pass the time, the Duke wrote books and he became an avid gardener. And Simpson wrote articles and she designed patterns. And they enjoyed, you know, cafe society in New York and Paris. By most accounts, they remained deeply in love. But also, by most accounts, the Duke yearned to do something more. I believe that this story is, in a sense, a reflection of the story of humanity. How so? Well, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve to rule with him. The first humans, our first parents. They were king and queen, essentially, over creation with God. And they were meant to multiply, to fill the earth and bring God's beauty and order into it. It was an intimate, life-giving partnership with God that gave them purpose and brought dignity to their lives and by extension ours as his sons and daughters. What did our royal parents do? They abdicated. They abdicated the throne. They vacated it. They left it. There's something that they wanted more. Much like the King of England, there's something they wanted more than to rule and reign with God as his human partners and learn from him, learn his ways, learn his wisdom and build something beautiful with him. They wanted something more than that. The serpent, the enemy, convinced them that they could do it on their own and they could do it their way. And so Adam and Eve abdicated the royal thrones and we as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have followed suit. We've trusted in our own wisdom, in our own ways. We've rewritten the story to place us in our happiness and fulfillment at the center. We've rewritten the rules to primarily benefit ourselves and our tribe, even at the expense of others. We've lost who we really are in the process. So like the king of England who was exiled to France, Adam and Eve were sent into exile outside the garden, outside of God's garden, our true home. Now, by simply being born human, we are spiritual exiles away from our true home and in the dark about our true identity as royal sons and daughters of God. And like the King of England, even when we get everything we want in this life, I believe that all of us, we deeply yearn for something more. We ask the question, is there more than this? And I think it's because we were created for more. So I want to look at a text today that gives us more of a picture of what that more is that we were created for. We're going to look, read out of Luke 1. It's going to be the story where the angel Gabriel predicts Jesus' birth and announces it to Jesus' mother, Mary. So Luke 1, 26 to 38, it says this, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. That's going to be important. The virgin's name was Mary. Okay, this is important. When Gabriel shows up in scripture, when this angel shows up, he brings an important message from God. That's what he does. So this isn't random. Think about it this way. This is like a U.S. ambassador who serves abroad, and this ambassador symbolizes the sovereignty of the United States and serves as the personal representative of the president of the United States. How would you feel if you're an American living abroad and then one day an ambassador shows up at your door, knocks on it and says, I have a message from the president for you. You'd probably feel butterflies. You'd probably feel fear. You'd probably get sweaty palms. You'd probably feel fear. Your heart would start racing. You get the point, right? Now imagine Gabriel, an ambassador of God most high, 
showing up unannounced with a message for you, a divine message. What would I be thinking? Please don't die. Please don't kill me. Please don't die. Please don't kill me. That's what I would be thinking. What does Gabriel say to Mary? Verse 28, the angel came to her and said, greetings, to which I'd be like, ah, favored woman. Hmm? The Lord is with you. 29, but she was deeply troubled. She was perplexed, confused by this statement, wondering what kind of a greeting this could be. Okay, she's as confused and as freaked out as you would be or I would be. Okay, Mary is a very special woman, and we're going to talk about what makes her so special, but she's human. She feels all the feelings. She feels fear and so much that the angel had to remind her, don't be afraid. Okay, in verse 30, the angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Why shouldn't you be afraid? Because God's disposition, his attitude, his heart towards you is favorable. He's with you, Mary. He's with you. He's for you. And now listen, 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Okay, a couple of notes. The angel reminds Mary that she is a recipient of grace, his unmerited favor towards us. So everything we see Mary do from here on out is in response to the grace of God, not things that she's doing in order to secure the grace of God so that God will remain favorable with her or be favorable towards her. God already is. He is loving towards Mary. He is for Mary. And he wants to include this teenage girl into the greatest act of redemption, of restoration, of renewal, of bringing new life that humankind has ever seen. That's what grounds everything that Mary will do from this moment on. And here's the deal. That's how the Christian life works. God sets his love and his grace upon us. And then we respond. And it's so easy to forget that. I forget that. You probably do too. But we never earn his love. He bestows it on us. And then we respond to his love. That's the first thing. Favor, Mary. Grace. Mercy to you. Favored one. The other thing that's important out of this verse is that the name that the son of Mary will have is significant. Jesus is actually the Greek form of a Hebrew name. Joshua, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And this matters because the original audience, they would have thought about the Old Testament leader, Joshua. And he was someone who led God's people into the promised land. So this gives us a major clue as to what Jesus is going to do with his life. He is the greater Joshua. But we're not done. Jesus is not just here to fulfill the story of Joshua, bringing God's people into their eternal home. There was more. There's more to the story. Verse 32 says, He will be called great, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Yes, God made a promise, very important promise to David, the king of Israel, back in 2 Samuel 7. And he said, I'm going to put a king a descendant of yours, David, on the throne forever. Generations had passed since that promise, and no king from the line of David ushered in a kingdom without end. Until this very moment in this story that we're reading, God says, he's coming. 
more on, on, on the kingdom and what the kingdom is like that Jesus is going to usher in a little bit later in this message. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not, ha- have not been with a man. It's sort of a big deal. She's never been with a man. So how could she have a baby? That's a fair question. And 35 says, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. 36, and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. Elizabeth was her cousin who was barren. And she, at the moment that Mary is getting this news, Elizabeth is pregnant, a miracle. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing, and here's the punchline, nothing will be impossible with God. So it's miraculous, it's mysterious, but through God's intervention, Mary will become pregnant without the normal means. Okay, this is crucial because if Jesus had been born the normal way, he would have suffered from our same sinful, broken condition. Okay, he would have been prone to abdicate just like us. If he had just been the result of two human beings coming together, he would have been, just like Adam, someone who abdicates, someone who vacates, someone who walks away from the royal call to walk with God, to partner with him, to see this beautiful garden extended out to the ends of the world so that God's beauty and order can fill the world. He would have abdicated. However, God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the son of God. And he's also fully human because he's Mary's son, but he is without sin. And because he's sinless, he can become the true king that God promised to David and so much more. He can become the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world and more. Mary almost certainly cannot comprehend all of this. I don't know that any of us really can. And she's a teenage girl, but she shows that she knows enough to give the most amazing response. Verse 38, she says, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. And that brings to the completion the verses that we're going to read today. So listen to this quote, which I thought was so helpful. That helps put into perspective why Mary's response was so incredible. It says this, a young unmarried girl who became pregnant risked disaster. Unless the father of the child agreed to marry her, she would probably remain unmarried for life. If her own father then rejected her, she would have been forced to beg or worse, to sell herself to earn a living. And Mary, with her story about becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit, risked being considered crazy as well. Still, Mary, despite the risks, said, may everything you have said about me come true. Here she is. Mary's a true disciple. And I like this quote as well. Despite some lingering confusion and uncertainty that, and probably feeling no small amount of fear, Mary responded to God's grace with faith, with faith. And that faith that expressed itself by submitting to God's word and promise. What a beautiful picture that is for us to hold on to as disciples. God may call you, he may call me to do things that we don't fully understand, that are costly and that cause people to question us, sometimes ridicule us, or as a minimum, they feel confused by us because we don't share their value system and make decisions that they wouldn't make. But we can trust him because in everything, he has shown us his favor, his mercy, his 
grace, just like he did to Mary. And he promises us in the same way that he promised Mary, I will be with you. He promises to be with us so we can walk out the things he calls us to in response to his grace. Now, I want to close with this. Like We started with the story of the king of England abandoning the throne and use that as a, as a picture to frame the human story. So as Adam's descendants, we too have abandoned our royal post to build lives for ourselves in our own strength processing life from within our own resources and relying on our own wisdom as to what seems best to us. We abdicate. The royal throne that belonged to humans, it lay vacant in a sense for generations. That is, until the arrival, okay, Advent is about arrival, until the arrival of our King Jesus. Here's the crazy part, the big twist that will come as you read the, the story. His enthronement as king, it didn't come through military wins. It didn't come through crushing his enemies. His enthronement took place on a cross where he died for his enemies, for us who abdicated our royal thrones to pursue much lesser things. Now, King Jesus, our forgiving king, he sits on a throne of grace. And now we can approach him because he has shown us favor like he did to Mary. And we can ask him for help in our time of need. More than that, I think it's important to remember that Jesus, he's not bitter towards us. He's not bitter towards his fallen human family. He loves us so much that he gave up his life for us. His body was broken for us so that our body could be made new. He hasn't canceled us or judged us harshly or given up on us. He used his power, his authority. He really laid it down so that he could bless us and do good to us as his enemies to make us his friends. So how should we live? What's the proper response to Advent, to this arrival of this king? It's to live as he lived in the world. Why? Because he's restored us to our identity as God's co-rulers, his human partners, his royal sons and daughters. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are. So what does that look like? What does that look like? It, I love this. This is a summary that I read as I was preparing for this message. It looks like this. The kingdom, the kingdom, God promised King David that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. Jesus, who we now know is Jesus. This is what the kingdom is like from Jesus' own life and teachings. He says that the people of the kingdom are people who are radically generous, not greedy, because Jesus has been radically generous with us. And so we return, we, we, in like kind, we respond with generosity. So we're people now who are servant leaders. We're not self-serving anymore in the way that we would be, but we've been, we've been served by our King. And now we respond by looking at other people, taking notice of their interests, of their needs, of who they are, and then serving them just as we have been served. The people of the kingdom are peacemakers. Why? Because Jesus has come and brought us near to him and made peace with us. He is reconciled with us. So now we can actually be reconciled to one another and be people who recon who are people of reconciliation in the world. We're peacemakers. We're not blame shifters. We also are people who are now forgiving because we have been forgiven much. And if we understand how much we've been forgiven, then we will forgive much. We won't become bitter people. And we're also people who are devoted authentically at a heart level to God. 
and we reject religious hypocrisy. This is who we are now. Through the arrival of God's king, we can become who we were made to be. We can reassume our place as God's co-rulers and help bring beauty and order to God's remarkable world as we rely on his wisdom and his ways through his abiding presence in us. And we walk as sons and daughters, kings and queens in his new kingdom. That's who we are. That's what Advent does to us. And I hope this is good news to you today, wherever you're tuning in. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then I'm going to Uh, I'm going to invite us to go into a time of worship with glad hearts, hearts that cry out, thank you. You are good. So Father, we thank you because you are good. And, And I pray that we'd be the kind of church who does things that don't make sense to people like Mary did, who, who walk into everything that you've called us to walk into, even when it doesn't make sense, because you are good, because you are gracious, because you're doing something amazing in the world and you've chosen to work with us your human partners. And Mary gives us a sense of what that was like, of what can happen. She changed the world, man. And we can be the kind of people through whom you bring blessing and good things to people who are in darkness, to your enemies, whom you love and want to bless, who we were and are no longer. So we love you, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and for your spirit whom you've sent into our hearts. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to encourage you, Worship him, enjoy him, lift your hands and raise your voices to the king, our forgiving king who sits on the throne of grace and welcomes us into his family to be his partners in this world. Hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace to you, church. Love you. Enjoy this time of singing.